I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. You'll need a Bible as we look at the Word of God. So these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get you one of those Bibles. It's our gift to you. So keep that and bring it back with you every week as we look at Scripture together. Today, Jonah chapter 3. And we're looking there because we're continuing our series in this short four-chapter book. In the previous three messages, which you can listen to at our website, we've seen that Jonah had a privileged background in that he was raised among the prophets. That is, people who spoke for God and that he himself was a prophet of some renown among his countrymen in Israel. But God knew that there were recesses in his servant's heart that were blind spots to Jonah. Jonah had been given God's grace, but Jonah also needed to be shown his desperate need of that grace as a means to grow Jonah in godliness. So God commanded Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh and to preach to them. But Jonah hated the Ninevites for understandable reasons that we saw in the first message in this series. They were, in fact, a violent and notoriously cruel people that were agitators against God's people and within would, within just a few generations, take God's people captive. So, instead of doing as God had commanded, Jonah boarded a ship headed in the opposite direction of Nineveh. But, as with us when we run from God... God does not stop chasing us. We can run, but we cannot hide. And so God sends a storm that caused so much turbulence that the experienced sailors were certain that they were going to die. In another act of God, they were able to identify Jonah as the very reason for their problem by casting lots. And the solution was to rid themselves of the problem by casting Jonah into the Mediterranean Sea. Jonah agreed to this course of action, which at first may seem selfless. But in fact, as you think about it, it means the Ninevites still won't be preached to and still will not be offered the opportunity to be spared God's judgment on them. So in dying in the sea, as was the likely outcome, Jonah would still achieve his goal of frustrating the Lord's plans. Jonah might die but he would not deliver God's message to Nineveh. In chapter 2, God extends undeserved grace to Jonah. Now, undeserved grace is redundant because grace, by definition, is undeserved. But I want to underscore that Jonah deserved to die. He deserved to be left in that sea because, as we know Scripture teaches, the wages of sin his death, and he was clearly sinning against the Lord. But God was merciful. The same God who caused the sea to rage also rescued Jonah from it in the form of a large fish to protect and ultimately deliver Jonah safely to shore. Contrary to what many people think, the miracle of the fish was not a punishment to Jonah, but instead it was his means of deliverance from the consequences of his rebellion. And so in chapter 2, Jonah praises God for his mercy. And at last, and, and, and at least part of God's lesson to Jonah has now been learned. Though Jonah has been a privileged 
individual by God's grace in the past. He sees that he is a sinner in need of God's grace in the present. So now, a thankful and humble Jonah is ready to obey God's call. And that's how chapter 3 begins. Verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the me- and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now we have an outline inserted in your program for today's message as we do every week. And I encourage you to take that out so that you can follow along as we examine how God graciously works in the lives of his people for our good and for his glory. Let's pray together. So, Father, here we are on another Lord's Day with your book opened before us, desiring to learn from you. I pray that that is indeed the desire of every heart that is here, that we are open to what you tell us in your word and that we desire to make application of it in our lives so that we, like your servant Jonah, can be shown the recesses of our hearts that are far from you, have those repaired, restored in repentance so that we can better be useful servants of yours for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The outline, I say first of all, that God's grace is displayed in his patience. God's grace is displayed in his patience. He comes to Jonah a second time. After all that Jonah has done, God has come back the second time. And I must confess to you that this patience piece is something that I am not particularly good at. Particularly when it requires me to do what God is doing with Jonah. Namely, chase people down. Part of shepherding, part of pastoring is doing that. It's having a flock of people and sometimes, yea, often, you will have people who leave the flock. People who wander from the path. And then the shepherd goes after them. We have shepherds, plural, in our congregation. And our leadership team has to chase people down. And we do so because it is the right thing to do. But as I say, I admit to you that I battle with it. There are times when I'm thinking to myself, how many times do I have to? But then I'm reminded of God's patience with me including his patience with my impatience, including, as well, his patience with my out-and-out disobedience. And so God did with Jonah as he does with me and as he does with us. He gave a second chance. He is the God who gives second and third and 70th chances, thanks be to God. The deliverance of this one Hebrew sinner, Jonah, was necessary for the ultimate deliverance of many Ninevite sinners. And so as we're going to see, God works in Jonah's life relentlessly coming after him so that Jonah does indeed do what God had planned because he it was necessary that he be delivered from his own set of sin sins so that he could be God's instrument to the Ninevites. But what was it specifically that Jonah needed deliverance, rescue from? Well, among other things, chiefly at this point in his life, he needed to be rescued from his false understanding of God's grace. 
You see, apparently Jonah did what we tend to do. And he viewed the world in terms of good people and bad people. But he and we need to understand that the so-called better people are only so due to God's grace. And apart from it, we would be just as bad and bad off or worse. As Christians, it's certainly true that we're better off than those who are not. But it's easy for us to pervert God's grace in our lives so that we see ourselves as not only better off, but better. We're the good people. They're the bad people. And so to correct this thinking, God gives his people glimpses of our own potential for evil by exposing our hearts in situations that are not to our liking. God exposes what's in our hearts by placing us in situations that are not to our liking. That is, he puts us in situations. He places us in relationships. He calls us to areas of service that we don't like. And in that instance, the question is whether I will do what I want or what God wants for me. You see, friends, every sin at bottom is motivated by a desire to get what we want. Or it's a reaction to not being given what we want. We rebel against authority because its authority is not doing what we want. We murder because we didn't get what we want. We commit adultery to get what we want. We steal to get what we want. We lie to get what we want. We covet because, well, coveting is all about what we want. That's precisely what it means. Now, perhaps you've noticed that what I just mentioned are all of the horizontal requirements that are given in the Ten Commandments. I say horizontal requirements. Those that have to do with our relationships with others. Honoring father and mother, that is, those in authority. Murder, adultery, stealing, lying, and coveting. It's interesting that the very last of the ten is the command against coveting. And that's because it's a summary of the rest. The late Christian philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer said the horizontal commands are all based on the tenth final command against coveting. He said this, We break this last commandment not to covet before we break any of the others. Anytime we break one of the other commandments of God, it means that we've already broken this commandment in coveting. It also means that anytime we break one of the others, we break this last commandment as well. So no matter which of the other ten commandments you break, you break two. The commandment itself and this commandment not to covet. And in your New Testament, the Bible confirms that, in fact, our actions are based upon our desires, what we want. So in James chapter 4, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Let's just stop there. So why did you quarrel and fight this week? Well, it's because of this person. It's because of what she, how she treats me. It's because of how he fails to. It's because my boss is such a jerk. It's because the list goes on and on, doesn't it? And what does God's word say? Why do we quarrel and fight? It's because we're not getting something that we want. The Bible goes on to say 
That this all-controlling desire to have what we want, covetousness, is actually about God not being the kind of God we want him to be. So Colossians chapter 3 simply says straight up, covetousness is idolatry. Now what's the connection with my covetousness, your covetousness, our desire to have what we want, get what we want, things to go the way we want, and idolatry? Well, it's this, we pursue our idols because God is not the kind of God we want him to be. You see, if he were really the kind of God he should be, then he would do things differently. He would provide fill-in-the-blank for me. And because he does not, I want that, and so I will sin in the absence of receiving it, or I'll sin in order to get it. So you see, this thing with Jonah is actually about all of us being Jonah's. Because we run from... Those things that we don't want. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. He had reasons for not wanting to go to Nineveh. You have reasons. I have reasons for the things I don't want to do that God tells me to do. We all got reasons. But hear this, friends. There is never a good reason to disobey the commands of God. Never. So God says, husbands, love your wives. Do you want to do that? Are you in a relationship in your home where you have a harmonious relationship and it's easy to lavish love upon sacrificial love upon your spouse? For some of you, that's not the case. And so you say, because that's not the case, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. And for years, you haven't done it. Wives, submit to your husbands. Yeah, but he's not a loving, godly leader. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say you follow his leadership if he's the kind of guy you want. As a matter of fact, submitting to authority assumes that there are times where the authority is going to act and do things in ways you don't want. Otherwise, there would be no need to submit. If they always did what you want, you're in control. Or about other commands. Those are, those are very basic, but very important commands that many of us just blow off. But what about things like this? Rejoice in the Lord always. Be joyful. Is that you? In the midst of your circumstances, that's a command of Almighty God. But I don't want the situation I'm in. I don't want the job I have. How am I supposed to be joyful in that? And so we don't. Because we want it to be other than it is, because we desire it to be other than it is, because we covet something other than what we have, we fail to obey God in where we are. So you know what that means for us, friends? We're big sacks of sin. All of us. And all of us have these recesses of our hearts lurking in our hearts that we're battling or worse... We've given in on the battle and we've simply gone into neutral and continue in the way of disobedience to the Lord. And the Lord desires to root that out of our lives so he will put us in situations to expose that it's there. Jonah was a good guy. 
But he was a good guy who needed to be shown that good guys and gals need God's grace. So God commanded him to do something he didn't want. God put him in a situation other than what he wanted. So we're going to move on, but I want you to think about, let's think about our lives and whether or not you're in a situation you want. What aspects of your life are the things that are regularly gnawing at you? You hate it. You hate living in Michigan. You hate the weather in Michigan. You can't wait till you can retire so you can go down to Florida. You hate your job. You can't wait till you can find another job. And on it goes. So everybody's got their own list, right? And in the midst of that, not joyful. How can I be joyful? I hate my job. I hate Michigan. God's grace is displayed to us in his patience. And in his patience, he puts us in situations and in relationships to expose things about ourselves that we would not otherwise see. It's displayed in his patience so that he, I say in the outline, grants us equipping grace. You see, God used the result of Jonah's disobedience to equip Jonah for service. We saw last week that God used the actions of the sailors in throwing Jonah overboard to affect his plan to work in Jonah's life. But of course, there would have been no need to throw him overboard. And God would not have had to send the storm that caused them to fear for their lives if it were not for Jonah's disobedience to God in the first place. So hear this. God used even Jonah's sin to produce growth in Jonah's life and make him useful for God's service. Now, of course, that does not mean that God caused Jonah to sin, but rather that God overrules sin for his good purposes in the lives of his people. What a blessed promise. Because, see, one of the reasons that we often don't move on is because we've been sinning and we sin in these situations that we don't want. And then that's taken us into to further areas of sin until we feel there's no way there's no way back and God is no longer going to accept us. But God overrules sin for his good purposes in the lives of his people. And the principle is found in Romans chapter 5 where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Now this doesn't mean that it's okay to sin. In fact, that very the next chapter, Romans chapter 6, asks, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means may it never be. Jude verse 4 says, ungodly people are the ones who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. It's never okay to sin. But what's wonderful is the fact that we are sinners and we do sin and our gracious and sovereign God overrules that sin to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people. So it means that your usefulness to God is not over when you sin. That sin may alter the way in which we serve, the position we have within God's service, the manner, the ministry we have, but not the reality that we are God's and we can and will serve Him effectively. God did that with Jonah. Jonah's a prophet. Jonah had prophesied. We saw that a few weeks ago. He had gained some renown because of his ministry. And now God calls him to do something he doesn't want and exposes something 
about Jonah that he didn't know was there. It took him to the brink of death. And yet God brings him back to make him effective for service. He gives him his equipping grace. God is never done with you until we take our last breath, friends. God's equipping grace is available. His grace is displayed in His patience that grants this equipping grace and then it results in what I say in your outline, evangelistic grace. So God had told Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to do that. Goes the opposite direction. God takes action. And now as we see in chapter 3, Jonah ends up going to Nineveh. He gave evangelistic grace. That is, Jonah is now in a position to go and evangelize the Ninevites in a way that he was not prior to that. Jonah has now been humbled. Jonah now sees grace in his own life so that in the title of the series, he's not just saying grace, but he understands saving grace. And now he's equipped to evangelize, to tell the message of Jesus to others. And Jesus referred to the ministry, the evangelistic ministry of Jonah when Jesus walked the earth. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was asked by his detractors, what sign will you give us that you are who you claim to be? And Jesus rebuked them for requiring a sign. And he says this, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we might look at that and we say, well, the only parallel there is between Jonah and Jesus is the three days and the three nights. Certainly that's true. Jesus calls it, calls it out. But one commentator explains what this means this way. That it was out of Christ's weakness that the sufficiency of his saving power will be born. It was out of his death that men will receive life. The same principle is expressed in the book of John where Jesus is recorded saying this. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Fruitful service is the result of the death-producing life principle. Death-producing life. And so God puts his servants in deathly positions. God puts his servants in weak positions. And out of that weakness, and out of that near-death experience, he brings life. Let's just stop there for a moment. Why do you think God does that? Why do you think that that's God's pattern throughout Scripture? We're going to see it further. Well, it's because when that happens, when God uses weak, deathly people like us, then God is the one who receives the glory for what's accomplished. And so the Apostle Paul recognized this and he explained it in detail when he said, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive and are are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies so then 
Death is at work in us. But life is at work in you. So you see this pattern throughout Scripture. That death produces life. Weakness produces strength. God uses the ignoble things. The things that are not. And the things that are not that are despised in order to accomplish his work. The Apostle Paul said of himself in his ministry to the churches at Galatia. My dear children, I'm in the pains of childbirth until this Christ is formed in you. And so as I give myself, as I pour myself out in this, I'm placed in a position of weakness for Christ to be formed in you. The famous psalm in Psalm 126 says, Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Notice the pattern. The weakness, the death, the weeping produces God's work. Now, the analogy between Jesus and Jonah breaks down because Jonah had to be forcibly humbled, whereas Jesus chose voluntarily to give himself for us. But the parallel is that there's this life-producing death principle. You could call it the Jonah principle, if you like. Like Jonah, we won't go to people with the gospel unless we fully understand our need of the gospel. We won't be motivated to go to people with the gospel unless we first understand what the gospel has done for us. And Jonah needed to learn that. But this principle is not just true in sending us out into evangelism. It's true of making us fit for service in general. And so whether it is the evangelistic task to which God has called all of his people to go and make disciples of all nations and be willing to speak up and talk to those that God brings into our spheres of influence about the gospel, whether it's that or whether it's some area, other area of service in all of that, God is molding and seeking humbled people, humbled under his hand in order to carry out his work. In the case of evangelism, one has defined it this way. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. I mean, that's really what it is when you give the gospel. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. But in order for you to be one of those beggars, you've got to recognize the condition you're in. Jonah needed to understand that. God's patience showed that to him. So God's grace is displayed in his patience, giving equipping grace and then serving grace and evangelistic grace. And I say secondly in your outline. God's grace is displayed in his message. God gave Jonah a message, and it was a, I say in the outline, clear message. In verse 3, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You don't have to go to seminary for that. He goes to Nineveh, that's his, that's his message, or at least that's the summary of his message. And God was the one who gave him the message to preach. Because as we read earlier in verse number 2, he tells Jonah, now go to Nineveh and proclaim to it, verse 2, the message that I give to you. So this is the message that God had given to Jonah. That in verse 3, we're told Jonah proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be 
overthrown. Now, this is probably a summary of the message. Jonah may have, in fact, told them of his experience. And he could have, that he could have and should have died, but God delivered him. And now the same God who delivered me is willing to deliver you if you will turn and repent. So it's probably a summary of his message. There are summaries of the gospel message given in Scripture. And as summaries, that means there are more details to those messages than are given in just those brief statements. One famous example is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a summary of the gospel. Where the Apostle Paul said, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And then he says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So there, very briefly, are given, we are given the essential components of the work of Christ. That he died, that he was buried, and that he raised. But there are people who have taken that then to mean that's everything that there is to the gospel. So that would mean, if you take it to its extreme, there is no such thing as repentance necessary for salvation. Did you know that there are people who teach this? And in fact, some years ago, we had someone in our church who came to believe this. And as a result, they are no longer in our church because they don't believe what we believe. In fact... I would say they believe a different gospel. But on an occasion years ago, we had put uh, our one-page baptism application inserted in the Sunday program. We've done that from time to time so that folks have it. If you want to get baptized, fill this out, turn it in, we'll get with you, and we'll talk about whether you're a candidate for baptism. It's very brief. You just fill out about six or eight questions. On it, who do you believe Jesus is? What do you believe Jesus has done for us? Does Jesus have complete authority over your life? Uh, give us a brief uh, description of your testimony of salvation. Fairly straightforward, as far as I know. And yet, this uh, person objected. As a matter of fact, said, and this is a quote, we're becoming like the Roman Catholic Church. Because of that. Now, why was that? Here's why. Because he then quoted to me this verse. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so for him, that's all you tell somebody. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. If you say anything else, then you are adding to the gospel. If you say anything else other than believe, if you say repent, if you say Jesus is Lord. Now I'm going to get off of this in just a moment. But I just want you to note that even in that verse, notice on whom it is you believe. The Lord. So that requires some explanation about who the Lord is, doesn't it? And you bow yourself before the Lord. And Jesus, what does that mean? His very name means he will save his people from their sins. And what does Christ mean? He's the anointed one. The anointed one, yes, to come and do his work on the cross, but also to be the king. This is going to rule over his world as well. He's the anointed one. So even in that verse, it's believing in the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a summary, and he probably gave a summary to the Ninevites. But it's a clear message. And when we give it, it's simple but profound. 
And it should be given clearly. And it doesn't need to be dressed up. And as a matter of fact, to the extent to which we dress it up, we dilute it of its power. And so Paul said this about his own ministry. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception. We do not distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's what Jonah was charged with doing, giving this clear message. That's what we're charged with doing as a church and as individuals. God's grace is displayed in his message. It's a clear message and, I say, it's a powerful message message. You see, the results of this clear message that Jonah proclaimed to the Ninevites. Verse 5 of Jonah chapter 3, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger anger, so that we will not perish. So it had a profound effect. This simple message had a profound effect. Now how? <laughs> well, it clearly was not the charisma of Jonah. It wasn't that Jonah had a cable TV show. It wasn't that Jonah knew how to move people. All of that would detract from the central theme of all of this, which goes back to chapter 2. Salvation is from the Lord. And so God sends this humbled servant with this simple and clear message, and he accomplishes these great things. So where's the power? The power's not in Jonah. The power is in the message accompanied by the move of the Spirit of God. The power is in the fact that the gospel is is His chosen message for the transformation of people. And when the gospel is preached, God the Holy Spirit moves on the heart of those who believe, giving them spiritual life. When the Apostle Paul looked back on his ministry In the city of Thessalonica, he wrote back to them his first letter, 1 Thessalonians. And he says at the very beginning of that letter, our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but with power. And what is that power? With the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. I can preach the word of God. Every week, faithfully for the rest of my life. And it will have zero effect apart from the power of the Holy Spirit on the hearts of those who hear. But thanks be to God, he is pleased to use the message. To move upon the hearts of people. To save them and to sanctify them. So we preach and we obey But it's God who gives the results. And so the Apostle Paul said famously, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God 
has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Here's Jonah, this humbled now prophet, with this simple message. He proclaims it, and God does this miraculous thing. Because regeneration is a miracle of God on the heart of the individual. So friends, with all of that, with a Jonah standing before you, with dozens and dozens of Jonas and Jonettes before me, I want us to conclude by thinking about how this applies to us individually. Think of a type of situation in which God has repeatedly placed you, even though you tend to fail and to sin in that situation. For example, think of a way to serve the church or others that keeps popping up in your life, even though it's not how you're, quote, gifted. I mean, there's an opportunity, but you don't take that opportunity because that's not my thing. Or think of a difficult temptation that keeps coming back. And if just in the moment here, if you can't think of anything, well, then just think about the struggle that we all have with telling other people about Jesus. Most of us have struggles like that, as did Jonah. So now fill that in. God repeatedly calls me to fill in the blank, despite how I fail and sin in that situation. And here's how you should look at that then. You should look at it as if God is teaching you about your heart. When you realize God again wants you to do the thing that you failed at. Now ask yourself, what heart attitude am I bringing to that call? How am I viewing that? Let me give you a fairly long list of possible heart attitudes that you could bring to that. One is resentment. Enough already. Again, God? Another is fear. One way or another, I know this is going to turn out badly, so I fear moving forward. Another is coldness. I don't care what God says, nor do I care about others, really. Let me just stop there. I'm going to get... The list goes on. But none of us, I would hazard to say, none of us would actually mouth those words, I don't care what God says. Which is why when I counsel people and they're refusing to do what God says, I say, I want you to mouth those words. Because I want to force us to see what's really going on in our hearts that we try to suppress. So resentment, fear, coldness, stubbornness. Lord, that's not my thing. That's not how I'm gifted. Even though you keep putting this before me and there's a need that I can fill. Spiritual pride. Watch this, Lord. I'm going to do better this time. My own way. Or spiritual worry. I need to do better this time or God is going to disown me. Or defeat. Why should I even bother? I failed so many times. Or being half-hearted. Well, I guess I can do some of that this once. And so you go and do it, but you don't do it with your whole heart as unto the Lord. 
Or your hard attitude can be hiding. How do I make sure no one sees how hard this is for me? Or avoidance. I'm sure I'll get around to that once the Lord works on my heart a little more. So just keep putting it off, which means continuing to put it off means continuing to disobey. Self-condemnation. I feel like scum already. I don't need another opportunity to fail. So as we saw last week, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that God has a loving purpose behind all the difficult areas of life. He's training us as a father to a child. And so we saw from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And so with all of those attitudes going on in our hearts to the things that God is telling us to do, join the church. Serve in God's church. Love your wife. Submit to your your boss. On and on it goes. In all of those things, this passage is saying when we get weary... When we fail and when we sin, we should remember how our struggles confirm the love, the dignity, the protection that we have as children of God. God is working in our lives. But we need to cooperate with that work. That then in turn will bring new hard attitudes. So which new attitudes has God given to you or do you hope for? Let me give you some of those. Belonging. This is how my father is pursuing my heart because he loves me. You notice how that's totally different than all the others in the list I gave you. I belong to the family of God. This is my father doing this for me. Contentment. One way or another, this is going to turn out for my good. No longer fear. I know this is going to turn out badly. Dependence. I'm going to do this. But I'm going to do it with God, not as a performance for God. A prayerful attitude. Lord, I need your help in order to be able to do this. But I will step out in faith. An attitude of teachability. I wonder what God wants me to learn through all of this. An attitude of godly comfort. I'm safe. Failure can't destroy me because Jesus has saved me. An attitude of confidence. My father is determined to complete my salvation. And he's doing just that. And he's doing that even in and through this situation. Just two more. Humility. I come to it with an attitude that says, I clearly have so much more to learn. And that's what God is doing. He's teaching me. And an attitude of worship. Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand what you're calling me to. I don't understand why you keep pressing this on me. I don't understand why you've placed me in the relationships and circumstances that you have. But I worship you because your ways are so far beyond me. And on it could go. So here's what God did in Jonah's life and here's what he does in our lives. God takes someone who doesn't like what God has given them. It's not to his liking. It's not to your liking. 
And so you refuse to do it or you half-heartedly do it or you put it off or whatever it is. And in all of that, if you're a child of God, it's God's way of working in your life in order to extend his grace into you and then through you to others. But we need to understand that that's what's going on. It's God's grace in our lives. So your take-home truth is this. God displays his grace to both good and bad sinners. It's not just them. It's us. Let's bow before the Lord. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the grace that you have lavished upon us in our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that because of your grace and because of the gracious relationship you allow us to have with you as children to the Father, you are not done with us as you were not done with your servant Jonah. And so the word of the Lord comes a second time and a third time and a fourth time and now again today and it may be the dozenth time for brothers and sisters in this room and you keep coming to us. You graciously call us back and call us to what it is you have designed for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the example that we have in your work with your servant Jonah. We thank you for the grace that you've given us in our lives individually, in our salvation, but not just at the moment of salvation, but in an ongoing way as you sanctify us, set us apart from the world and to yourself for your service. And so we thank you. For the grace of God that, as your word says, teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions, and to embrace what you have for us in in righteousness and an upright life as we look forward to the blessed hope, the return, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that today, because of your message we gain a new appreciation of your ongoing grace in our lives. And Father, I ask you to help your children to change the attitudes that they have toward those things to which you are calling them. Change those attitudes in light of the grace that you've given them in the relationship that they have with you as their father. As a result of this, may it mean we're moved to godly action that glorifies and obeys you. As a result of this, may you use us as your servants in your work and in the evangelistic task of calling people to yourself. All of it to redound for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.